Well, hello. It's great to be here with you. My name's Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be gathered with you this morning. What a great day. I'm particularly happy it's getting warmer, and we don't have to freeze every morning, so I'm glad for that. In preparing this sermon, I realized that it's been a while since I've shown a video clip to introduce a sermon, so I figured it's about time to reintroduce that. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I'm going to show a video clip from a favorite TV series of mine. And this particular TV series was known for dealing with the kind of everyday things of life in unique ways. So this is from the TV series Seinfeld and an episode called The Close Talker. Let's watch this. So, Lane, you don't have a problem with her, do you? We adore Elaine. She wants to say hi. She's with her new boyfriend. What's he like? He's nice, bit of a close talker. A what? You'll see. <laughs> hey! Hello, Elaine. Hi, Ralph. This is Aaron. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Hello Aaron. So, how long are you folks in town? Oh. <laughs> Three more days. Three more days, and then we're off to Paris. Ah. We're going with the select charter group. I love France. I was just there last year. In fact, <laughs> you know. I still have an envelope full of French francs. I'll give them to you. Well, we can't take money. Oh, no. It's a gift from us. Oh, that is so nice, Aaron. <laughs> Isn't he nice? <laughs> so listen, has Jerry been showing you a good time? No, I haven't. <laughs> you know, I, I have a friend who works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. How'd you like a behind-the-scenes tour? Really? You could do that? Easily. It wouldn't be any trouble? Of course not. When could we go? How about right now? I'm ready. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, let me get my coat. All right, how many of you have had experience with close talkers? Yes. It's a funny dynamic, right? How you want to be near someone when you're communicating with them, but there's a certain nearness that's sometimes too near. And so there's a dynamic, and it's different with people, with different cultures, with different situations, but there's a sense in which you want to be close, but not too close. This morning, we're picking up in our series on the book of Exodus. And as we've been going through Exodus since September, we've identified three major sections of the book. We began seeing how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He delivered them into freedom. Then in the second major section, we saw God provide his people this set of laws and commandments that would guide their behavior, that would shape them into his people. And in the third major section, which we kicked off last week, we're seeing how God teaches his people to worship, how to, in a sense, experience his presence. So Dan opened up that section last week by showing us how God invited Moses and several of the leaders of Israel up onto the mountain for a personal encounter with God. We heard about how this surreal experience was offered to them, where they sat down with God and ate with him. And as we pick up in the next chapter, which is Exodus 25 today, we're going to see how God gives Moses instructions to take what they experienced as a literal mountaintop experience down to the valley and to provide a way for God's people everywhere to experience his presence. But just like with a close talker, 
they, they wanted to be close to God, but not too close. And so this whole desire is for God to make his presence available to his people, to allow them to be in his presence. But because of his majesty and the people's sinfulness and all the complexity of relating to God, there had to be this system to allow them to come close in the right way. So this morning we're looking at Exodus 25, 26, and 27. I hope you're comfortable and don't have afternoon plans. Three long chapters, and there, within it are these detailed schematics for how to build what's called the tabernacle, a place on earth, a portable place where God's presence could be experienced. And what we're going to see as God describes this is how there are certain principles that still hold true today in terms of how to experience the presence of God. I love how Rolanda opened us up this morning by asking us why we're here. And that was helpful even for me to think about that and to, what do I come in here with? But if you're in this room, if you're watching online, there's probably some part of you that wants to have an experience with God. I think that's built deep within us where we want a transcendent experience. We want to be connected with something bigger than ourselves. We talk about in church, we talk about coming into the presence of God, of relating to God, of praying to Jesus, but what does that mean? How do we actually experience the presence of an invisible God? That's what we're gonna be unpacking this morning. And as we do, we're gonna see three major sections of this uh, large chunk of scripture that we'll look at. The first is just the opening where we'll see how God tells Moses to collect something from the people. And we'll think about what we bring into worship. If you want an easy way to remember that, we're going to have some alliteration this morning. That's the, the collection that God asks for. And then in the second section, we're going to see how God gives Moses instructions to construct the tabernacle, these detailed instructions on creating a building where God's presence could be experienced. But after that section, we're going to jump forward into the New Testament and see how the person of Jesus Christ embodies everything we've been talking about for the previous part of this morning and everything else there is, and really see how Jesus becomes the opportunity for us to encounter God. So collection, construction, Christ. Easy to remember, right? All right, let's get going. We're going to open up with the first part of Exodus 25. Moses is supposed to start a building. He's supposed to build something. So what do you have to do before you start to build? Materials. Gather your materials, right. Plan, all those things. So God tells Moses to start a capital campaign. Get a loan. Well, you know, there's not many banks in the desert, but this is what, this is what God says for Moses to do. He tells him to make a collection from the people. Now, I want you to imagine as I'm reading this, hundreds of thousands of people in the desert being told to do what God says here. All right, this is Exodus 25, 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, 
blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you, according to the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. There's a long list of stuff. God gives Moses 12 different items that he's supposed to collect from the people. And then he goes on to the next part of the few, these few chapters to reference those items about 100 times describing what to do with those items. It's basically the equivalent of our giving slide where we say you can text to give, you can give online, or you can give in the basket. It's more complicated though. You know, you can give acacia wood, you can give goat's hair, you can give fine twined linen, you can give purple yarn, you can give blue yarn. So ours is easier, right? We're doing you a favor here. Moses is supposed to collect all this stuff and then assemble it into a tabernacle. And essentially this is a recipe for worship. Here's the ingredients. Here's what you do with them. And at the end, you have a tabernacle. But notice some things about the kinds of things Moses is supposed to ask for. This is not like the tithe where you're supposed to give your essential items like flour and oil and meat. All of what he's asked to collect are the extras in life. Gold, silver, fancy yarns, special things for jewelry or special occasions. These are the particularly valuable items that you might give. And notice too that this is not a mandatory collection like the tithe. Do you notice that phrase? From every man whose heart moves him to give. This is something that you are supposed to want to do. Moses is presenting an opportunity to the people to collect something that they want to offer to God. All of these valuable things, it's hard for us to really understand what place they have, but let me explain to you about blue yarn. You probably haven't thought much about blue yarn lately, but in the ancient Near East, the color blue was made from a particular mucus of a particular sea snail. And you could harvest this carefully by preserving the life of the sea snail, or you could destroy the snail in the process. Now, it's a very labor-intensive process, and one historian claims that 12,000 snails were required to create 1.4 grams of dye. It's a lot of snails. It's also a very stinky process. The stuff smelled. So actually, the Jewish law made provision for women whose husbands chose the profession to be a dyer to divorce them because they would stink all the time. So this is the kind of thing, blue yarn, the most valuable thing, this is what you're supposed to bring for the creation of the tabernacle. I didn't actually plan this, but after I got dressed this morning, I wondered how many snails would have to contribute to my purple tie this morning. Fortunately, it doesn't stink like most snail stuff. The point of all this is to think about the kinds of things that we bring to God in worship. 
that if we want to encounter the presence of God, it's going to require something of us. We bring what we have. We bring what's been given to us, and we offer that to God. The experience of worship is not something that we consume. It's not a bunch of professionals on stage designing something for you to come in and and experience and say, I liked this, but I didn't like that, and, and you consume it. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that we are a community who brings the best of what we have together, offering them into the midst of our group and seeing God do something with that. We bring our best to God. So let's think about how that played out for the people in the desert. What did it look like for them to bring their best to God? Think again about the types of things that are being asked. Gold, silver, fancy, yarn. Where'd they get this stuff? They're living in the desert. But if you remember back in the story, when they left Egypt, it was said that they plundered the Egyptians, that the Egyptians actually gave them a lot of their valuables, probably because they were terrified of a God who had the power to kill their firstborn. And so they wanted to placate that God and get him as far away from them as they could. So they gave them all their valuable stuff and sent them out. And now they're asked to give that to God. So imagine a woman from the people of Israel whose neighbor gave her a a gold bracelet as she fleed from Egypt. And imagine that that bracelet was probably important to her. She'd left her life. She was living on the run in the desert. And this was a thing of beauty that reminded her of a stability she didn't have anymore that, that created something powerful in the midst of the desert. And Moses says, bring your gold and offer it to God if your heart moves you. And so she feels moved and she brings that bracelet to the contribution. And that gold becomes part of the pile of gold that's used in the tabernacle. So that months later, she goes and she worships in the tabernacle and she sees the altar that is covered in gold on all surfaces. And she knows that that bracelet that was special to her is now being used to cover the altar. And it's not just something beautiful for her, but it's something beautiful for the whole community. And not just to experience beauty, but to experience the presence of God in their midst. And so this thing that she received as a gift, she turns around and offers as a gift And in return, she receives something back that's so much more, a communal experience of God's presence. That's what's happening here. Every Sunday, that's what we do together. We have all received immensely from God gifts. And so we turn around and we bring those gifts back to God. That that includes our talents our skills, our personalities, our our gifts, but it also includes our finances, our stuff, the extras of life. We offer that to God and then we receive back the joy of seeing God's work in a community, seeing what our finances have gone to help create, seeing what our efforts have done in the lives of children who grow up in this community, 
seeing people who've been struggling with something and we had the chance to pray with them and now we see them being encouraged. That's the presence of God in our midst. So we don't just come to experience and consume. We bring ourselves, we bring our best and we find God in the process. So this is the instruction that Moses gives to the people to make a collection, to gather all this stuff. And then with that, he has very specific ways that all of those things are to be combined into the tabernacle. Now, this is a long series of instructions. What, what, what God does is he goes through all the parts of the tabernacle and gives instructions on how to build each segment. So he starts with the ark, and then he goes through the atonement cover, the table, the lampstand, the linen curtains, the goat hair curtains, the frames, the bars, the veil, the screen, the altar, the court, and the oil. That's all of these chapters. And there's a very similar pattern to each of these. So we're just going to read the one about the ark, and we'll make some observations that pretty generally apply to all of them. Here's Exodus 25. I'll read 10 through 16. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make of it on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So this is kind of a common pattern that God goes through. He describes the thing that's to be made. He describes the dimensions, the materials that are supposed to be used with particular reference given to how this item is meant to be carried so that the ark, the tabernacle, can be quickly disassembled and reassembled when God's people move. Now, we're not going to go through the whole set of things, but I want to show you a picture of the entire tabernacle structure as it might have been built. So this is the whole building. There's, a, there's an ark around the, there's a court around the outside where the general people would gather and then that middle section that's labeled the temple is the holy place. So that if you dive down and kind of unpeel that, we can see what's within that holy place. And you can see now the different sections, the different items that are built. And right there at the core is the holy of holies, where the ark would be. It's interesting that when God gives Moses the instructions to build this, he starts at the center. He starts with the ark. And then he goes gradually out from there. Because that spot, the ark, is like the fulcrum of God's presence on earth. And what I want us to notice about how this tabernacle is constructed is that it's really combining a set of contradictions and tensions, opposing principles that somehow are managing to come together in the building of the tabernacle. And I'll show you what I mean. I'll give a few examples. First of all, this building is portable, but it's also permanent. In Exodus 27:20, we read that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. 
That was a lamp that was supposed to be lit all the time, 24-7, to reference the permanence of God's presence. And yet Exodus 26-17 says, there shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. This is a particular way of manufacturing the tent so that it can be portable, very quickly moved as God's people move. So God's presence is permanent. It's always there, but it's also always on the move. Second example, God is able to dwell with his people in law and in forgiveness. So within the ark, you may have noticed, 2516, we read, you shall put into the ark the testimony. That would be the tablets of stone that contain the instructions for how to live. Then on top of the ark, there's this thing that's described as the mercy seat. This is Exodus 25, 22. From above the mercy seat, God says, I will speak to you. That word's really tricky to translate. I think a better translation is probably atonement cover. It has to do with something that allows for forgiveness, for sins to be atoned for. And so God sits on top of the ark, which contains the law, but he sits on the cover which offers forgiveness. Those things somehow come together because both are required if you're going to experience God. Third thing, the presence of God is a heavenly reality, but it's an earthly experience. We read in Exodus 26, 30, you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. It seems that God showed Moses something physical in a sense, that he was then to go down to earth and replicate. The words in Exodus are not enough. They don't have enough detail to build something. But because Moses saw it, he can give people instructions on how to replicate it. But then it's this thing on earth. Exodus 27, 9 says, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. This is the place where everybody gathers, a big open space for people to come physically and congregate. So it's an earthly experience, but it's also a heavenly reality. Finally, God is a receiver, but he's also a giver. We read about the bread of the presence. In Exodus 25, 30, it says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, we're not really told much more about the bread of the presence. We don't really know what its function was, but somehow it was like God's people offering him food. And this would have been a common practice in the ancient Near East. It still is in some cultures around us. Even during a Chinese New Year, people offer oranges to the gods. This is offering food to the gods. But for God's people, for Yahweh, the food wasn't for him. You read in Leviticus 24.9, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. So God is receiving this bread, but in reality, the bread is a reminder that God provides for his people. God is a receiver, but he's also a giver. And there's more of these tensions and contradictions. God is creating a perfect place in the midst of brokenness. He's creating something that um, combines a lot of details about what it should look like with a lot of ambiguity and flexibility for creative design. There's this tension between the unity and oneness of the tabernacle and the diversity of all the things that go into it. All of things mixed together so that what happens is when you come into the presence of God, 
It's like there's all of these complementary ideas and forces at work that all combine together. And I think part of the reason for that is because we need different things. There are times where we come into the presence of God and we need to know that he is there in the same place always. And there's other times where we need to know that God goes with us wherever we go. There's times where we encounter God and we need to be challenged that there are decisions we're making that don't line up with how God designed life to work. And there's other times we need to come into God's presence and be overwhelmed with his mercy and forgiveness and love. And so somehow God is able to construct this building that combines all those things into one place. The helpful thing, I think, for us is that we tend to be a, a kind of people that likes things to make sense. We want to put everything in a box. We want to make sure that we understand all the things and there's nothing left unresolved. But in worship, it's just too big. It's too vast. It's too mysterious to put all the pieces together. As we enter into the presence of God, we have to embrace the mystery of worship. Coming into God's presence means we come in with wonder, with awe, speechless in light of the majesty of what we're experiencing. It's not a place to come in and understand everything, explain everything, find answers for all your questions. It's a place to come in and to recognize our smallness, to recognize, as Shin said, the greatness of God that we can't even begin to explain. This is what it means to worship. And I think sometimes because it's so big, we miss out on what God is doing. We want so badly to explain it that we miss the experience of being in the presence of an all-powerful God. God has given Moses these instructions to create an incredible building. Start off by seeing how he collected all of these valuable materials, how he carefully fashioned it into this exquisite place that would be a physical space for the presence of God to be manifest. But... It didn't work. The tabernacle didn't work. It wasn't enough. As beautiful as it was, as powerful a place as it was, it wasn't enough to create a space where God's people could meet with him. And so by the time we get to the New Testament, we realize that something more was needed. Something better was required. This is what John says, how he opens his gospel. This is John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is the important word here. It's the Greek word that is used as a translation for the Hebrew word tabernacle. So a very literal translation would be that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This person, this Jesus Christ, 
is the tabernacle, the better tabernacle on earth. And in this verse, you can even see some of those contradictions that we highlighted, law and grace. You can see the glory. The word becomes flesh. And so somehow Jesus manages to be the person where all of these tensions and contradictions come together and complete themselves in him. That's the argument that the author of Hebrews makes. He actually calls Jesus the better tabernacle. Listen to the list. This is Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 12. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ was the more perfect tent. He was the better tabernacle. He brought grace and truth. He made communion with God possible. Christ has allowed for us to enter into the presence of God in a way that they couldn't even fathom in the Old Testament. Because of his death and resurrection, because of what we celebrated two weeks ago, there is a way opened for us to put our faith in Jesus and experience God's presence in a mysterious and powerful way. If you count yourself as a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then Jesus is everything. And yet, the way we talk of Jesus, a lot of the time it's just, we, we'd like to put him in little categories and it's never enough. We like to say, well, Jesus died for my sins so that I can be saved. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But Jesus is more than just a ticket to salvation. Jesus is the creator of everything, the redeemer of the whole earth, all of creation, the judge, the giver of life. He's everything. We like to say Jesus is a good teacher and he gave us great principles to follow, which is true, but Jesus wrote those principles. He lived them. He embodied them. They somehow came into existence in his being. Jesus the Christ is something so much greater than we can even imagine. For me personally, that's why I find it helpful to be connected to other churches and other traditions, to read other authors from different cultures and different time periods, because I know that my experience of Jesus is limited by who I am, by my personality, by the kind of way I work. And so when I encounter something else and I say, that doesn't make sense to me. Why do you worship Jesus that way? Or why do you think of him in those terms? It forces me to come to grips with the vastness of God and of his son that I can't always fit into my neat little categories. And so when we come together, we're not just singing songs. We're not just giving money. We're not just thinking about what's going on. We are encountering the person of Jesus Christ who still lives today in our midst as we bring all that we have and are together into one place. We come together and we worship Jesus together. That's what's going on here. We worship Jesus together. And you may say, I know that, and, and I know that too, but just to be reminded that what's happening here is not easily explainable 
It's not just words. It's not just songs. It's the presence of God. Steve Zeisler, one of our former pastors, is teaching a class for the next several weeks on the book of Revelation. And I was able to sit in on it last week. And he referenced the book of Revelation saying that it was like a vision of Jesus that transcended words. Because sometimes language can't quite explain everything. And that's really what happens here all the time. We use words. We say words. We listen to words. We pray. We, we think. But what's happening here is bigger than the experiences we're having. And to be reminded of that, to be brought up into the experience of Christ, to hold him at our center, and to know that, that I bring what I have and I offer it to God and somehow it benefits all of us. And as a community, we are built up by what we bring. Worship is not something you do. It's not something you get. As Rolanda asked, why did you come here? You don't come here to get something. You come here to bring something and experience God in the process. Let's return to our friend, the close talker, and think about why that close talking makes us uncomfortable. We want a little bit of distance from people when we're having a conversation with them. We want to be close, but not too close. And we've seen how in the Old Testament, God constructed this elaborate system to allow his people to come close, but not too close. But that changes in the New Testament. When Jesus comes and lives among the people, there is no veil. There is no curtain anymore. There's just Jesus. And sometimes when we're that close to people, it's uncomfortable. We want a little distance. We want a little personal space. And yet Jesus comes in a way where he asks for an intimacy that sometimes pushes our boundaries. In fact, listen to how he explains it himself. This is what Jesus prays for as one of his last prayers on earth. This is John 17 Verse 21, he prays that they may all be one, that's us, that we may be unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's pretty close. Jesus prays that just like the Father is in him and he is in the Father, that all of that, that, that we may be, that they may be in us, that we might be united, connected, experienced in the person of God. That's what's going on here when we gather together. Jesus is in a very real sense in us. So as we continue in worship, I want to invite the band to come back up. And we're going to continue singing about who Jesus is. We're going to be reflecting on the mystery of what's happening here, right now, in this earthly place, representing a heavenly reality where all of those things come together in our experience. We aren't just singing and praying and eating and sitting down together. We are experiencing the mystery of the presence of Christ. Why don't you go ahead and stand and I'll pray for us.
Father God, thank you that you give us a way to experience you. That even though you are invisible and transcendent, that you are perfect and holy and great and mighty, that even in our brokenness and our mortality, we can come into your presence and we can experience who you are in each other, in the community and with each other. God, give us a clear vision of Christ. Help us to see him, to experience him in our midst, to give glory to him, to worship him, to praise him, to bring all that we have, all that we are to Christ and to receive back the gift of his presence. Grateful for who you are, God. Grateful for your love for us, your forgiveness, your tenderness. Help us to see Christ. We pray by your Holy Spirit and in his name.